So today we'll be in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And I'm just going to read through that whole passage. Verse 7. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. And a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, so that the crowd wouldn't crush him, since he had healed many All who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. God, I pray that you would speak through me this morning, God, that you would use a weak vessel to proclaim your strength and your salvation, God, that you are the creator of the universe, the one who sustains us. I pray that we would know that this morning, be comforted, be in awe of you, and respond in the way that we leave this place this morning, God, that we would know you more, be encouraged by the truth in your word. Amen. So, uh, at the beginning of this passage, we see that Jesus is leaving Capernaum with his his disciples. Um, And we know that these disciples are not only the 12 men we usually call Jesus' disciples, because later on he appoints those 12 disciples. Um, So, we have this crowd called disciples that goes with Jesus to the sea, and then we see that there's also a much larger crowd of people um, who have come from hundreds of miles away that meet Jesus and his disciples at the sea when they get there. This larger crowd has come to see Jesus out of desperation to be healed or freed from demons. So many people have flocked to Jesus that the crowd is getting out of control. Imagine how huge and wild this crowd is in this scene. Some in the crowd had been dealing with sickness and pain for years. Others were desperate to save a loved one who was close to death. All these people have heard the stories of people who had been healed by this man Jesus and were coming to be cleansed, to be healed. They wanted to see it with their own eyes. People were simply touching Jesus and being healed. So more and more people, it says, were pressing up to Jesus to get as close to him as they could because they were desperate. 
I can only imagine a completely hectic scene of multitudes of people with reckless abandon pursuing this man that they had put all their hope of healing and cleansing in um, for the sake of themselves or for the sake of whoever they brought to be healed. And yet, as desperate as these people were, many of them were missing the point. These people didn't know who Jesus was. They just wanted the benefits of His power. We know that it's good for us to recognize the power of God that He has over our circumstances, but if we only want Jesus for our physical benefits, we don't understand the debt that we owe our Creator. We don't understand the, the inability of ourselves to, to pay that debt, and we don't understand the punishment we deserve for that debt. These people knew nothing of the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. That's why they weren't included in this group of disciples that Jesus, that were following Jesus around. They only cared about being saved from their circumstances. And as soon as they got what they wanted, they, they went back to wherever they came from. Most of them didn't continue to follow Jesus. They just went back to the place they came. We must ask ourselves if we love Jesus Christ for who he is or if we just love the life on earth he has given us. And maybe that makes some of you scoff when you think about all the suffering you've endured. Like why why would you think like I'm I only love him for the life he's given. My life is crappy right now. But um but I know it's, it's, it's a struggle. Praise God if we go through suffering and come out the other side with a greater love for and trust in God our Father. But I know that some of us struggle with enjoying the gifts God gives more than enjoying God himself. It's really easy for me to make Sunday mornings all about socializing with my friends, especially during COVID season. One of the only times I see my best friends is at our Sunday worship gatherings at the crossing. And, and I, it's, it's been a really refreshing time for me. And that is it's just one example of a way that we can make something else the main thing rather than Jesus Christ. The problem with that way of thinking is that our joy in Christ is limited by our circumstances. We feel great as long as we love our job, our family is healthy and happy, and we have time to hang out with our friends. But as soon as things go wrong, it's easy to start to second-guess everything. If my main joy in a Sunday service is the social aspect of it, then I'm not going to be as motivated to come if my best friends aren't there. To that struggle, I'd just like to encourage us to pray that our joy would be rooted in Christ alone and that we would remain grounded and steadfast in the hope of the gospel despite whatever afflictions we find ourselves in. As we move on, before we get to Jesus naming the 12, I'd just like to address verses 11 and 12 where Mark goes into some specifics about how Jesus interacted with demons. Jesus commands the evil spirits he casts out of, out of people not to make him known. When I first read this, it made sense. It made sense that Jesus would say this to demons because demons are evil. And so 
to, for Jesus to tell these, this demon to, to not go tell about him, at first I was, that made sense because you don't want an, an evil witness to tell, to tell the people about you. I don't, I don't want somebody who I know is a liar to go out telling people about me because they're going to skew the truth. But then, I, but then I looked a little closer and these demons are saying the truth. These demons are saying, you are the son of God, which we know to be true about, about Jesus Christ, that he was, he was the son of God. And so I don't think this is about demons being poor witnesses. I think this is about Jesus' timing. And Jesus has his own timing in mind. He knew that he wanted to make his, his identity known in his own timing. And, that wasn't the, and the demons didn't know that timing. Yeah, so this, this command by Jesus seems to be more about his own plan and his own timing more than it is about demons being poor witnesses. And Jesus gives a similar command in many places elsewhere in the Gospels. Notably, after he casts a thousand demons out of a man later in this book, in, in Mark 5, he says, uh, in this case, he's not commanding the demons to keep their mouths shut, but he actually tells the man who's being freed and is eager to tell everyone about Jesus being saved from bondage, he tells him to be quiet. If you, if you don't remember the story, this guy is crazy. He, he, he comes uh, to the, the shore of um, the Gerasenes, this region, and this guy is known around the area. He's in this wilderness area. He comes out of a cave and he's going ballistic because he's filled with this legion of demons. And uh, this, these demons are speaking through this man who's ravaging himself because he's, he can't control himself because these demons that are in him. And Jesus frees him of his slavery to these demons. And afterward, he's himself again. He's, he's grateful for Jesus freeing him. And Jesus tells this man who's grateful to, to, to him, he tells him, don't go telling anybody about what, you just, what just happened. And so it's obvious, like, he, he's not worried about this guy being a poor witness. This guy's grateful He's not a demon. He's, he's now freed from demons. Jesus is worried about his own timing, his own plan. Um, so Jesus tells this man to keep quiet about everything that happened to him. God already opened the heavens and proclaimed that Jesus is his beloved son. If we remember Jesus' baptism, God opened up the heavens and said, You are my beloved son. You are my son whom I love. And so the people who were there know that heard that voice coming from heaven. So yeah, I mean, God has his own timing. Jesus knew this timing. He knew this plan, and he chose to quiet certain people who knew the truth. Jesus was patient and disciplined in making himself known to people he encountered. So this makes me think of uh, a situation in my own life where um, it's easy for me to become discouraged that my brother doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. I have one brother and two sisters, and my brother is a sibling in my family who has just rejected Christ in his life. And uh, it really discourages me at times thinking about um, the state of his soul. And sometimes I even neglect to pray because I feel discouraged about God not answering my prayers. I get discouraged that Bryson doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. I've had conversations with him where the gospel was proclaimed, 
but he never believed that salvation from his sins was something he needed. When I get caught up in thinking um, that my timing and my plans are better than God's, I become discouraged in the way that I pray. I think, what if God never saves him? What if he never answers my prayers? Is God still a good God if he lets my brother spend an eternity in hell? But when I remember that God's timing and his plans are better than my own, I'm encouraged to pray earnestly and even weep for my brother. I can be confident that even if God never saves my brother, he's still good and his plans are perfect. Jesus himself waited over 30 years to start his own ministry. So we should ask for patience when we make other requests in prayer. So let's encourage one another to trust in God's timing because his timing is perfect and ours is not. All right, so let's keep moving through this passage. This next section of the passage is all about naming and appointing the 12 disciples Jesus chose to be with him, it says. Jesus named these men apostles, which means sent ones. He sent these men out to preach the news that the Messiah had come, that the Son of God was here to save people from their sins, and his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He sent them to cast out demons, um, and people were cleansed of those evil spirits. And that brings up an important point. Because Jesus gave Judas Iscariot the wisdom to preach and the power over demons. Judas, the guy who would later betray Jesus, is being sent out as one of Jesus' personal ministers of the gospel. This man went out and made disciples of Jesus Christ and used the power of God to cast demons out of people, all while never truly knowing and loving Jesus himself. And God uses unbelievers elsewhere in Scripture as well. We have no reason to believe King Cyrus of Persia was a God-honoring man. Read Ezra if you want to know more about him. But um, God moved through him to fulfill the word of Jeremiah that Jerusalem would be rebuilt and that the Jews would repopulate uh, Jerusalem after being exiles in in, in Persia. And Demas is a guy who's, who's listed a couple times in the back of a couple of the, of the epistles, the letters to the churches. And uh, Demas was one of the leaders of the, of the early church. And yet later we find out that Demas was, was a dissenter. He, he was ousted for, for speaking against the faith. And so this man who was originally thought to be this, this great leader in the church was ousted. And even today we see how So much good is done through the ministries of men who have proven to be unrepentant or even heretical about what they believe. Ravi Zacharias was a well-known Christian apologist. He traveled all around the world preaching and defending the faith against every secular argument against it. But news recently came out that he's been involved in activities of sexual misconduct for years. And that's crazy to think about. But this man, God did great things through this man. And he now we're not. 
is, we're not even sure if he's, a, if he's a believer. He's, this stuff has been going on for years. And we're just now finding out about it. C.S. Lewis, the author of classics like Narnia, like the Narnia series and Screwtape Letters, has encouraged many people with his books, but was unclear at best in regard to his views on salvation. Many, many people believe that he was a universalist, that he thought all people were going to go to heaven. Um, his, his views on salvation were just not very clear. And so it's, it's, it's unclear whether he was, he was a, a, a true believer. And, and we, we could debate about whether C.S. Lewis is a believer, that's, but that's not, the, that's not the point. The point is that God uses and, and can do great things through men of no faith, of, without saving faith. And so what can we glean from this information? The, the, the point is, the bigger point is, we can find relief in the fact that Jesus doesn't need us. Jesus doesn't need us to bring anything to the table. He didn't even need certain people to be believers, to believe that the truth of who he is, to use them. And the thing is, we can never offer God anything that he doesn't already have in himself anyway. So any, any effort to do that is, is, is fruitless. We can work diligently to try to become a useful tool in God's toolbox, but that, but that ends up making much of ourselves and not of God. If we feel like we have to reach some level of spiritual maturity or, or wisdom before he will use us, we'll put our hope in our own preparation instead of putting our hope in God who gives us power through the Holy Spirit. You can see this same truth in the way Jesus sends out the rest of the twelve besides Judas. At least the way the Gospels de depict this scene, the rest of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus doesn't list off the accolades of these men to show that they deserve the position he's giving them. We barely know anything about some of these guys. Sometimes we, we only see their names listed in the twelve. When was the last time you heard an inspirational biblical story about Bartholomew? Hopefully you never have, because there aren't any. There are no stories about this guy except that he was chosen as a member of this small group. And that's true of a few of them. Jesus gave Simon the name Peter, which means rock, but that's not because Peter was a rock in the faith. That's not because Peter had this strength in him. And we can see that later in the fact that Peter denied Jesus three times after his death or after his trial. And, 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 he, was, and he was stressed out and anxious about Jesus even even giving himself up. He didn't want Jesus to, to give himself up. Jesus, Jesus called Peter Satan. He told him, get behind me, because Peter was worried about Jesus' plan to, to be killed on the cross. And uh, so, so these guys weren't top tier. Jesus just chose them because he chose them. And, and we, don't know exactly, we don't know exactly why, except that he, his plan is greater than ours. But we do know why he he, that he didn't choose them because they were particularly godly, wise, strong men. Jesus didn't select these men because they were particularly smart or strong. And that's good news for us because we're all just as useless as these 12 disciples. Which just means we have to rely on God for our strength and not ourselves. 
He didn't choose us as his children. He didn't choose you if you are a child of God because of anything in you. He didn't choose me because of anything in me. So why do we feel like we have to prove that we deserve his salvation? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I remind us all of this not to make us apathetic about being more like Christ, but in an effort to remind us that we are completely reliant on the Holy Spirit at work in us to sanctify us. That means to make us more like Christ. So let's not neglect to pray to our Heavenly Father often. Yes, read your word daily. Read his word daily. Spend ample time with believers who will encourage you when you're struggling. Believers who will celebrate with you when times are good and admonish you when you're blind to your own sin. God knows we all need people like that, but don't put your trust in those disciplines to make you more like Christ. Let's recognize and encourage one another to remember that Jesus Christ is our only hope. The salvation we have received was a gift freely given. And our becoming more like Christ is only by grace in the same way. And let's also remember that God is not a distant God. We don't have to wait for him to arrive on the scene when we call his name, when we call on him. Because he is already here with each of us who is in the family of of Jesus. It says in verses 14 through 16 that Jesus appointed 12 to be with him, to send them out, which seems like an oxymoron. He, he, he appointed them to be with him and to send them out, to preach and to have the authority to cast out demons. Now, we haven't been sent out in exactly the same way, but isn't it significant that God is with us in an even more intimate way today? When Jesus sent out these 12 in pairs to preach and cast out demons, they were no longer with Jesus while they were out doing ministry. But when we're sent out today, we have the Spirit in in us. We have been sent out to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So let's go out boldly into our communities this week sharing about the hope and joy we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because that's what good Christians do, but let us proclaim his name out of an overflow of his love that fills us and overwhelms us constantly. God, I pray that you would overwhelm us constantly with your love and your grace, God, that we would recognize our sin and guilt, but that that wouldn't but that that wouldn't harbor shame in us, but that we would respond in joy because of the freedom you've given us to worship you and give you the glory for our salvation. God, I pray that you would be known through us, that you would be glorified in the way that we live our lives. God, thank you for your son. Thank you for the example um, you have given us in him and the word you have given us to study and, and uh, to know you more. Amen.